Father, we pray in the name of Jesus a blessing over Neil and anoint his lips, his tongue, his vocal cords, Father God, as he shares your word, as he unpacks uh, truth and makes it easier for us to apply in our daily living in the name of Jesus and all God's people say. Thank you, Gerben. Morning, everybody. Before we get to sharing uh, from the word of the Lord, I thought it would be good for us, or as a leadership, we felt it would be good for us to spend some time praying together. My favorite picture in the scriptures uh, comes from the book of Revelation. My favorite picture about prayer, that is, comes from the book of Revelation, where it says that the prayers of the saints go up like incense before the Lord, and they permeate the, the throne room. And this morning, we'd like to spend some time just praying around the coronavirus situation. We want to pray two things. We want to pray that we want to pray against the virus, not for it, uh, against that it wouldn't spread more than it already has. In fact, I have faith to pray that the Lord rolls back the infections. But we also want to pray as a community that we don't uh, that we aren't driven by fear, uh, that we're driven by wisdom and love, but not fear. So, if I may ask, if you're comfortable, won't you make stand, maybe make maybe make groups of four or five people. And just pray for those two things. If you're not comfortable to pray in groups, you're welcome to remain seated. God will hear your prayer too in that space. So can we form some groups in the community and then there's a couple thousand people together in this room. Let's send some incense up before the Lord so that he can answer our prayers or hear our prayers from heaven in that space. I'll be praying from the front for those on social media and on the radio as well. Father, we want to pray in Jesus' name that you halt the spread of this virus, that you reduce the infection rates, not only in our own country, Lord, but worldwide. Lord, I literally want to pray and ask that you would roll back the spread of this virus, that the numbers would stop increasing so dramatically, that there would be a decline in the infection spread across the world. And then, Father, as your people, we want to pray that we would not be victims we not, would not succumb to fear. Lord, we want to pray that you would make us more aware of your love than we are of fear. We pray, Lord, for wisdom. Help us to know what to do. Help us to look to you for wisdom from heaven. Help us to be wise. This is my prayer, Father, in Jesus' name. If you can, start bringing your prayers to a close, please. Thank you, Lord. And if you can all agree, let's say, amen. So be it. Thank you. If you can, take your seats again. So it's important that we wise, but that we don't give in to fear in this space. And there was substantial ministry during the service into that area this morning. Let's turn our attention to the word of the Lord. We're speaking on our series on the love revolution. And this morning I want to speak on the topic of love in action. How do we love well? How do we follow this commandment of God to love? And one of our challenges as humans is that we compare ourselves. When we want to know how we're doing with something, then we compare. Not so. Uh, I know some people are self-referential, but generally we don't like them too much. When we want to know how we're doing, we look at those around us, or we look for some form of standard to do this. The challenge is we need to make sure we're looking to the right standard. Um, I was a teenager in the 1980s, in high school, 
And uh, the 1980s, I think it was good and bad. It was a bit of a mixture, but one of the areas where I probably think the 1980s weren't so good was in the area of fashion. Now, how many of you were teenagers in the 1980s? If you're brave enough, okay. Um, it's very few of us, actually. Well, the rest of you forgive us, please. Um, I don't know if you remember wearing neon things. I never wore neon things. It didn't go with my personality, but some people wore neon things. Um, but I do have a bit of a story, um, which you may not use against me in any form or fashion. Um, I was in a boarding school, a boys-only school. This is important. And, but even in this boys-only school, we had certain standards of fashion. And so when we used to go for our suppers, uh, we all ate together in one dining hall. Uh, you had to dress smartly. So usually you wore smarter pants, long pants. And, and for a stage there, I think when I was about 14 or 15, there was a particular brand of clothing that was very popular. And one of the things they did is they brought out trousers in uh, different colors. So some of us were walking around with red trousers on, imagine that. Um, but the most popular ones were pastel-colored trousers. Okay. And so, I, yes, I did have a red one. But also had a certain color of pastel, very light, pastel-y color trousers. And in this boys' school, no one thought that was funny because everyone else was wearing trousers like that too. So when, we, when you looked for the standard or when you looked around, everyone else was doing what you were doing. But it so happened that in one of the school holidays, we had opportunity to go and visit some cousins who lived in Zimbabwe, in Harare at that stage. And so uh, we took the very long trip up to Harare. And being a teenage boy and the fact that there were three girl cousins and one boy cousin, I knew now I had to do well. You have to represent the country, <laughs> you know, and the family and, and all that. Um, this is probably the most fashion conscious I've been in my whole life. Anyway. So what I decided to do was to take my coolest pants. Uh, coolest in the 1980s meant nicest, okay? Coolest pair of trousers, and then the day just before we, the, we split the journey into two days, and then the day we traveled up there, I put on my cool trousers because this is what cool people do, and I'm gonna show my cousins how cool I am. And I vividly remember getting out the car, and my cousins looked at me rather strangely. Because you see, this light, pastel-colored pair of trousers I have, they were pink. <laughs> yes. Yes, I wore pink trousers. Confidently, until that point. And they looked at me strangely, and then the one of them burst out laughing and said, what are you wearing? And suddenly, my whole reference point, my standard of what was cool, changed. So what do we compare our lives to when we talk about loving one another? It's not pink trousers, by the way. Okay. What do we compare our lives to? How do we set the standard? We can't compare it to society around us, this, this idea, well, well, everybody's doing it. That's not an acceptable standard. Because what if everybody's taking bribes? Is that an acceptable standard? Because if they're doing it, surely, I can do it, and by the way, not everybody's taking bribes. I know this, there's people sitting in this room who've refused bribes. So not everybody's doing it, but this idea of everybody's doing it. Everybody lives together before they get married. Does that then make it an acceptable standard? We cannot look to society around us for acceptable standards. We need to look to the revelation of God, to God's will as it's recorded for us in the Old and the New Testaments. We look to the life of Jesus to look for our standards. 
So how do you know when you're loving well? How do you know when it's on an acceptable standard? I do want to say that I don't think we must look to society around us for the standard of love. Because whether it's Hollywood, Bollywood, or Nollywood, I think I've got the three big ones, they don't, in fact, if it comes off a screen, at least it's a Christian program probably, that's not an acceptable standard setting for love. Because one of the things all the woods will tell you is that an acceptable standard of love is physical intimacy, that love is physical intimacy. There's children in the room, so I'm being careful. And they'll tell us that. And so we associate it when we think love, we think physical intimacy. Or perhaps you think love and you think primarily, well, it's a feeling. And when God tells me to love others, I must have positive, warm feelings towards them. Or do I look to the scriptures to see what love is? Do I look to the life of Christ to see what love is? Now, there isn't a feeling part of love. And in its appropriate space and place, there is a physical expression of love. But love is never biblically primarily a feeling. Something that's happening a lot in culture today, and I think it's going to increase, is that love is starting being, to be equated with tolerance. If you love someone, you tolerate whatever they do. You tolerate whatever opinions they have. And the most unloving thing you can do is to be intolerant. And I don't think that's a biblical standard either. You see, the scriptures tell us that God is love. But God's not actually all that tolerant. I don't know if you know that. He's intolerant of sin. He's intolerant of fear, but he loves perfectly. And sometimes the best way we can love somebody is to not tolerate aberrant behaviors. If my daughter wants to go and run around in the road, I'm not going to tolerate that. Would that be love? It's not love. I have to be intolerant. I have to set boundaries to love. And so ultimately, if we want to know what the standard of love is, we have to look to God, and particularly the life of what God did in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And often when the scriptures speak of to love, it speaks of actions that we take. The most often used word in the New Testament for love is the verb agape. It's most often in the verb form. And so when we read about love in the scriptures, it often talks about to act lovingly. And so we start, need to start thinking about love more in biblical terms, more in terms where it's about how I act in a consistent way. And so we want to look at the standard of God, some things that come from scriptures this morning. Jesus said that you need to love one another as I have loved you. That's John 13 around verse 34. If you want to know the standard of love, you need to look at how Jesus loved so if you have a Bible or a device here this morning, won't you open it to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. This is a standard setting passage in the Bible. It starts telling us a little bit about how we live and what an appropriate standard is of how we love God and how we love one another well. Uh, earlier in the week, there were, uh, checked, there were over 30 people signed up to be baptized this morning. But part of what's happening in the baptism process is what we're going to read about in this passage. There's certain things you identify with Christ, and because you're identifying with Christ, you put certain things off, and you take up, and you put on some other things. And so we're going to read through Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to start at verse 1, and just comment a little bit as we go. We'll go paragraph by paragraph. 
So Paul writes to the Colossians and he says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will then also appear with him in glory. And so Paul starts this passage with this invitation. He says, because you have been raised. Now, obviously, as we're sitting here this morning, we haven't been raised from the dead. Well, not that I know of. Okay. But it speaks of how we identify with Christ. Part of the, what we do in our Christian lives is we reckon, we decide in our heads that We've died with Christ. We die to certain things. But then the symbol of baptism also is that we're raised to new life. And this new life, the terminology that Paul often uses, is this resurrection life. Because you have been raised with Christ, positionally, and increasingly, hopefully, experientially, you experience the life of Christ in you. There's, Paul says, because you want to live this resurrection life, you need to do two things. Now, probably in the text, they, they mean quite the same, but I just want to do a little bit of a degree of difference this morning to help us. First thing he says, because you've been raised with Christ, you need to set your heart on things above. Your heart here would be for me your affections and your passions. That which captures your affections and your passions, you need to set that on Christ. This is a decision you make. It's a choice you make that my affections, my passions, my emotions, my feelings, I'm going to set them on Christ. I'm going to do it that way. The second thing Paul says in verse 2 is that you must set your minds. Now, I don't think Paul made a very big distinction between your heart, your center of being, and your mind. But your mind here would, for me, speak a bit about your thoughts and your will. So you need to set your thoughts and will on Christ as well. Because when you want to live this resurrection life, when you want to live as though you are raised with Christ, you set your mind on things above, and you set your heart on things above, and not on earthly things. Why does Paul use this contrast, things above and earthly things? Why is there this contrast in these two things? I don't think what he's saying is that you must only think about heavenly things and that you must be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, if you've ever heard that terminology. I think what he's saying is that your life must be orientated from God's perspective. So when you look at something like the coronavirus, you don't look from a place of fear and earthly set of panic. You look from heaven's perspective. We love costs out fear. It's almost like Paul's saying is your earth, the earthly things would be your old life, where your old life was determined by things like wealth and power and pleasure, where those things determined how you want to live and, and how you, how, and they had a part in governing what decisions you made and what choices of job you made and who you married and where you lived. Those things, Paul is saying, need to be secondary. What becomes primary is God's priorities, God's plans, and God's purposes. We see everything, firstly, from the scriptures, from how God would want us to see it. Our life is determined by God's reality, not our own reality that's around us primarily. We let it speak to us in that way. And this is very important, Paul says, that we set our hearts and minds. These are choices we make. I remind you of Pastor Louis' sermon of about two weeks ago where he said, you set the affections of your heart and then the emotions will follow. You set your mind to do things God's way. You set your will to please God 
And then the rest of your life starts aligning with that. And then there's this wonderful phrase in verse 3. It says, your life is hidden in Christ. That basically means that your primary way of identifying is by being in Christ. The, the way you think of yourself is, how would I live to please Christ? How would I live to please Jesus in this situation? It's also, by the way, a source of security. I don't need to be scared because my life is in Christ. He's got me in the palm of his hand and he holds me. My life is hidden with Christ in God. It's a place of security. And so from this place where I'm identifying with Christ, where I've set my hearts and minds on Christ, Paul carries on in the next paragraph and he says, there's certain things you just got to, some things you need to put to death, some things you need to get rid of, and some things you just need to stop doing altogether. Not to earn favor with God, but because I'm already raised with Christ, because I'm loved by God, because I want to love him more, there's certain things I want to just eliminate from my life. So because I love, verse five, I put to death whatever belongs to my earthly nature, my previous way of life. And by the way, Paul's writing here and he's describing first century pagan culture, the culture of the unbelievers of his day. I don't think too much perhaps has changed. Paul says, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. God will not tolerate these things. The wrath of God will come. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all things such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, Paul writes, since you have taken off your old self, that's part of the old life, and its practices, and you put on a new self, which is being renewed, it's continuously growing in the knowledge in the image, knowledge of God in the image of the Creator. And he says there's no Jew nor Gentile in this family of God, no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but all is Christ and in Christ. So there's some things, if you love God, you put to death. You don't manage them. You don't tolerate them. You don't try your best not to do them. You put them to death. Can I use the word annihilation? Certain things you need to annihilate from your life. You need to destroy them from your life. Sexual immorality is one. Sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea, which we get many other words from. But the concept, as I studied it a bit and understand it, in, when it's used by Paul in the Bible, it's for any illicit sexual conduct, any conduct outside of heterosexual marriage, any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage, Paul says you have to put off. Sexual immorality is not God's plan. You put it to death. Impurity, this goes beyond the acts. This goes into your thoughts and your words and your, act and your deeds. Lust is your uncontrolled desires for things, perhaps also in the sexual area as well. But in case you didn't get that, Paul says, any evil desire, you've got to annihilate it. You put it out because you love God. Now, genuinely, we're quite comfortable with those, but in a very affluent society, I think we need to hear the next word very clearly. The word is greed. Don't manage your greed. Don't have a program to control your greed. Put it to death, Paul says. Why is greed idolatry? 
Idolatry is the worship of images or things. Greed is when I worship myself. When my own desires and wants and needs come above everything else. When my life is just about the accumulation of more and more and more. Not always material things, but definitely that. But maybe it's I bring more people, I, bring more, I do more good things because I'm just trying to make it all about my wants and my desires. We need to put to death greed and idolatry in our lives in that space. It's just the Bible I'm talking about, really. I could just be reading it, okay? Then Paul says, but it's not only those kinds of what we would call the big sins. You also need to rid yourself of anger, rage, and malice. Things that are in your heart, dispositions in your heart, things that are not appropriate. Those aren't fitting for the people of God. You know, it's that person where they're always angry or in the workplace where they're just malicious. They're always out to get you. That is not appropriate conduct for the people of God. Slander, the, the literal Greek word here is blasphemy. Blasphemy is when you misrepresent someone. So when you blaspheme God, you're misrepresenting, you're saying he is in a way that he isn't. And slander here is about when you talk about people in a way that's not true, not accurate to who they are. And then filthy language. We need to rid it out of our midst. I trust these are clear things. Often this comes through in the jokes people tell. Filthy language is not appropriate for the people of God. And then specifically to the Colossians, Paul says, do not lie to one another. There needs to be a level of honesty in the community of faith. Faith. We should not lie. Just stop it. And then the examples that Paul uses about a Jew or Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, and the different slave and free, what he's just saying there is, the earthly things, the earthly ways of defining and classifying, the earthly ways of setting standards like nationality, uh, religious status, socioeconomic status, those are not the primary ways of identification in the kingdom of God. What counts in the kingdom of God is are you hidden in Christ? But all is Christ and Christ is in all. What matters is are you in Christ as a primary? It doesn't mean you stop being Jew or Gentile or slave or free necessarily to use the biblical language. It just means that those are non, no longer the primary means of value, the primary means of wealth and power, the primary means of identifying yourself. Being united to Christ is what counts. And so when I'm putting things to death, getting rid of things in my life, and I'm not lying, and I'm allowing Christ to be my primary means of identification, this is how I love God well. This is a standard of love. We move on in the text to verse 12, and perhaps this would be the key text for this morning. Therefore, because I'm, my life is hidden with Christ in God, because I'm orientating my life to please Him, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. For the Lord, forgive, sorry, as the Lord forgave you. Of all these virtues, Paul calls them, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is important. We start with being chosen, holy, and dearly loved. That's who we are. God if you're sitting here in this room, if you're a believer in Christ, God chose you. You belong in his family. 
Paul says you're also holy. The, 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 the root of the word holy has this idea that it means to be set apart. So you could take uh, a pen and you could make it holy by saying this pen is no longer used for ordinary things. This pen does not conform to the normal life. This pen from this moment on is a holy pen because I'm setting it apart to be for God, to be used for God. And so in holiness, there's an idea of separation from, but also separation to. And so our lives get separated from earthly things, the ways of our previous world, what's normal in society around us, and it gets set to God. God has set you apart for himself. He chose you, he set you apart, and he dearly loves you. So we are well-loved. We belong and we have identity in that we're holy. We're set apart for God. This is love in action. Paul gives some examples. If you want to love well, here's a standard. Be compassionate to those around you. For those who are disadvantaged or suffering, have compassion. Have a feeling towards them, a deep feeling. This word, I can't even pronounce it in the Greek. It's too difficult. Splachthemothai or something like that. Trudy or Sean, you jump in anytime. See, they're also scared. Um, it's just from deep within inside, a feeling towards others who are disadvantaged, who are not as privileged, who are suffering. Kindness. How about we just be more kind? In our families, in our workplaces, kind. Imagine being kind at work to everybody. That would be a novel experience for some people in the room, I would suggest. Choose humility, Paul says where it's not about self-promotion, not about determining my own course, my own actions. It's not about me, I'm choosing the good of others. That is love in action. Gentleness, not arrogant, not self-assertive, considering others, that's all part of being gentle. Now, by the way, humility and gentleness in the first century, they weren't virtues, people thought those were weaknesses. But Paul writes, and they become, humility and gentleness become key marks of a Christian community. And then be patient, exercise some self-restraint. So if I want to love well, it doesn't necessarily mean I have to have warm feelings towards the others. It doesn't mean I have to tolerate. What it does mean is I must be compassionate and kind and humble and patient and gentle. Those are the ones listed in this text in 1 Corinthians 13 from verse 4 to 7, there's some others added there. So love is not all that abstract. Love is when I am kind to you, then I'm loving you well. When I'm kind to the difficult person in the office, when I'm kind to my weird fashion-driven teenager from the 1980s, that's love in action. And love here in this passage where it says, with all these things, wrap them around in love. Love, agape, this, to act lovingly, this verb gives this idea of, it ties them all together, it gives them context, it animates them, it gives compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, it gives them meaning. Paul also says that you need to bear with one another. Bearing simply means, you know that person that irritates you the most? Bear with them, put up with them. Putting up with things we dislike is part of loving others well. Not tolerating sin, but just those personality scratches and th those weird things that your spouse does that they just 
don't stop doing. Bear with them. Love them well. And then Paul says, part of loving others is forgiving. Forgive as Christ forgave you. And in Christian community, in our families, in our homes, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, loving each other well, becomes important. So what if in our homes we can be more kind and more gentle with one another? What if in our workplaces we can be humble? Perhaps you're on a team, you work in a team-based environment. Patience, imagine that. Imagine driving with patience. You might get there a little slower than you used to. Or how about bearing with the taxi drivers? This would be love in action. I know this is extreme. This is like really deep stuff. Love in action. Bear with one another. Have compassion for people who are driving on the road 10, 12 hours a day to try and feed their families. How about the beyond space? with the people at the traffic intersections and the robots to be compassionate and kind. Doesn't necessarily mean you give them money, but you can be kind and not ignore them. And if you perhaps carry some apples in the car or something to, to share in a compassionate way. Perhaps the worship team could join me on stage. We're not gonna read any further in the scriptures. I'd like to read verse 12 to 14 again, just as we draw to an end here. Paul writes and he says, therefore as God's chosen people, we are chosen. We are holy. God has set us apart and he dearly loves us. Therefore we put on, it's like you put on a suit of clothes that's appropriate to being part of God's family. You dress this way because in God's family you put on, you dress with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. If you do those, that is a good standard to measure how well you are loving. Bear with one another and forgive each other. If you have a grievance against someone, forgive them as God forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love because that's what binds the things together. It animates them. It gives them life in perfect unity. I believe the focus of our lives should not be so much on putting off things like we've read earlier. We need to put off those things. But if that's what I focus on, then I kind of become what I behold. That absorbs my mind and my attention. I believe that if we can focus on love, if we can get so busy loving well, then we won't have time for sin. And we'll find these things dropping off our lives. Things just dying. Things that held us will start dying because our focus is not on the sin, but on loving one another well. Be so busy loving that you don't have time to sin. Maybe you're gonna be baptized this morning. This is about identifying with Christ. You're gonna have this decisive moment where you decide that you don't identify with your old life anymore, but you're gonna rise up and you're gonna live. Since you are raised with Christ, you're going to live this resurrection life to which Jesus has called us. But however this applies in your home and in your family and particularly in your workplace, great way to think about this is this time tomorrow, how are you going to be putting love in action? How are you going to set your heart and your mind to loving well? But perhaps this is the place this morning to set our hearts and our minds. Uh, 
to conducive environments, the presence of the Lord has been here with us. Uh, there's two authors, N.T. Wright and Michael Bird, they talk about the church and they describe the church as a community of generous love. Can Hatfield become increasingly, we already do quite well, I think, if I look at the standards, but can we become increasingly a community of generous love, a community where compassion, kindness, humility, patience, gener- uh, gentleness, bearing and forgiving where, where those things are known for? But what about you and your heart? Perhaps you've set your heart on things above many times before, but I believe the Lord is calling us deeper. Maybe for the first time you realize there's things in your life you've got to put off and you've got to put on love. Can I invite you to stand this morning? Father, you hold our hearts in your hands and you have chosen us you have set us apart and you dearly love us more than we can ever imagine you love us but Lord as we hold our hearts before you this morning won't you help us to set our hearts to love you more to love ourselves better and then to love our neighbours well as well Lord, I pray that as we receive and experience more of your love in the days and in the weeks to come, that from our midst a love revolution would roll out into our hearts, from our hearts, sorry, Lord, from our hearts into our homes and into our workplaces, our campuses, our school classrooms, to the places beyond. But Lord, as we stand as a community before you this morning, as best we know how, we want to set our hearts on you. We want to love you the best we know how, with everything we can. And in doing that, Lord, we know that you've said you want us to love our neighbors as well. So I pray, Lord, for a love revolution in our midst, that love would become not only a thought or an intention, but that it would be expressed in word and in deed. Thank you for your presence with us this morning. Thank you that you have healed hearts and lives. And as Mike sung earlier, Lord, may it be only you that captures our passions and our affections. May it be only you that determines our thoughts and our choices. Only you, Lord, not the things of this world not the things from our previous lives, but the things of our new life, our life of resurrection with Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Just three things as you head out. If you would like prayer, there'll be a prayer team to pray for you. Uh, For anything related to the message, if you want to particularly say, commit your life to following Christ, please do that and tell the person that's praying with you. Or if you need healing, please come for prayer. For those who, excuse me, want to join us in the visitor's lounge, please just go behind the screens there. And then the baptism service will be starting shortly in our function hall. If you go through those doors and you just head a little bit straight on the right, uh, we'll be starting the baptism service there in a short while. So friends and family and anyone else who wants to join to witness the baptism is welcome. Thank you. Have a good weekend.